We've got some big news to tell you about from our partners at Conservative Review. Coming this December, it's CRTV, a brand new commercial-free digital network featuring Mark Levin, Michelle Malkin, and Mark Stein. You get all of this content anywhere you go, your laptop, tablet, cell phone, or even on Roku or Apple TV. And you can have all of this programming for a year for only $89 if you sign up before December 1st at CRTV.com. But to get that special price, you've got to use my name at the checkout, Dace. That's D-E-A-C-E. So go to CRTV.com and sign up today. Levin, Malkin, Stein, all for $89 a year. If you go to CRTV.com today and use the promo code DACE. All right, before we get started with this podcast, we need to talk about something. Friends, it, it feels like the whole world can literally change for the worse overnight. You're following the news stories. With what's likely coming for our country, there is one thing you should do, and that's prepare. When you're more self-reliant, you're closer to freedom from any national crisis or job loss or economic downturn. But where do you start, and who can you trust? Let me make this clear. Building an emergency food supply to feed yourself and your family is a wise first step. And our friends at My Patriot Supply will help you prepare. Get four weeks emergency food supply for only $99, shipped free. That's 140 adult servings of easy-to-prepare food. Order today, 888 888-457-3453, 888-457-3453, or go online at preparewithcr.com. That's preparewithcr.com. Build your emergency food supply for only $99. Limit two units per caller, 888-457-3453, or online at preparewithcr.com. That's 888-457-3453, or at preparewithcr.com. All right, now let's get to the podcast. You are now about to witness the strength of knowledge. This is Steve Dace. Raising a banner of bold colors, no pale pastels. People should not be afraid of their governments. Governments should be afraid of their people. Our rights are inherent and essential, derived from our maker. That is liberty, and liberty will reign in America. This is Steve Dace. And greetings. Happy Wednesday here on the Steve Dace Show, powered by Conservative Review on the Salem Radio Network. Steve at SteveDace.com is the email address. That's D-E-A-C-E. Like us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter at Steve Dace Show. Coming up here in about 15 minutes, Daniel Horowitz from Conservative Review will be here, and we will go inside politics with him. Of course, the, the big political story in the country continues to be Donald Trump's nomination of Neil Gorsuch last night to replace Antonin Scalia as the next Supreme Court justice. And that's where I want to begin, gentlemen, tonight's show. And I want to start by asking both of you a question. You're, you just, and, and I'm not talking to you about this yet tonight, so I don't know what you're going to say. And that's kind of how we like it. So we kind of shoot from the hip and react thusly. In the 24 hours since we were here last night talking about it, and when the announcement was unveiled and we gave our instant knee-jerk analysis, what have you seen, read, that has been encouraging slash discouraging, um, interesting to you? What have you seen about this? Todd, I want to start with you. Well, I read a particular uh, case, not the entire case, but a dissent of his on uh, police overreach. 
which uh, I found uh, refreshing. As I've said before, uh, we tend to go into these arbitrary camps. Uh, on the uh, on the right, we go pro cop. Uh, on the left, it's anti cop. But and I'm certainly not uh, anti cop. But cops are government. You know, we are supposed to be the ones that are not big government, not out of control government. So police, and they're the ones with the guns. It's imp- and, and it was about school resource officers and the propensity to take kids who are misbehaving and trump that up into um, making it overly litigious. Instead of a disciplinary in-house matter in school, it becomes a law enforcement issue. And he had a uh, f- well-written uh, dissent, and his uh, his writing. Uh, while not Scalia-like necessarily in in terms of its overt, um, um, you know, b- bloodshedness in terms of going after the left, um, he, he he has a wit that can cut, and uh, it was appreciated in that ruling. Aaron, the reaction that I've seen from the left and the right, the, 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 at some point, the uh, left's reaction to everything under the sun has got to stop being the typical racist, homophobe, sexist, misogynist. I mean, I think already for a large swath of the country, and we've had conversations about this, they're just tone deaf to that. Nobody cares when uh, somebody calls you a misogynist or a racist or any of that type of stuff. Nobody cares anymore because it's overused. And so their reaction to this is just exactly what you thought it would be. It's over the top. Um, I believe uh, Cecile Richards and uh, other people um, of her ilk, uh, and of course um, numerous uh, representatives and senators as well uh, from the left, have just gone over the top with their reactions to this. And you know what? It's it's not helping them. Again, it's it's to their detriment for them to react like this. So the reaction from from the left again has been more of the same. Nobody cares about that. And the reaction from the right uh, so far has been uh, fairly positive. Of course, uh, I think the news was. Um, this morning as well, Donald Trump is encouraging uh, McConnell to go nuclear for some of these uh, um, proceedings and for some of these uh, confirmation. Or that's a different different issue as well. So, a uh, reaction has been positive, and uh, reaction from the left has been exactly what you saw. Well, the left has thought. to react that way. They can't tell you the truth. The, the alternative explanation is the truth that we're out to undo your very way of life. We don't believe in it. We want to re we we want to radically transform the America that. Uh, was founded. We don't respect your traditions. We don't adhere to them. We don't honor them. We don't share them. I mean, that's a that's all true. And I don't say that. I'm not saying that to be personal derogatory. It's just a true assessment of of what they stand for. That's. But the problem is that's a bad political message. And so the alternative is they have no other alternative. But everybody's a racist, misogynist, homophobic bigot. And you're right. They've now run into a guy that is impervious to any amount of name calling because he'll just think up worse ones himself. And so the, so, so the playbook looks stale. Uh, it looks tired. It looks bored. Here's what I've noticed. And I'm, ex- and, and I'm encouraged by this. I am noticing that even though all of the big name conservatives, several of them are my friends, are all telling us that we should all thank Donald Trump for this today and everything else, and I don't have a problem with that. But I'm noticing that there is a strain of you out there that are skeptical good good let this skepticism flow through you we have been charlie brown on every conceivable issue imaginable in my lifetime but perhaps on no other issue have we been more screwed more often than on judges 
I mean, I'm getting emails from gals that are Googling where the guy goes to church and whether his female Episcopalian pastor was at the Women's March or not. Good. Good. And, and those of you that are excited, you should listen to your contrarians. Every movement should listen to its contrarians, even if you don't agree. But at least listen. Consider what you have to, what the contrarians have to say. When you get to the point that you stop listening your, to your contrarians, you cease being a movement. You become something else, an echo chamber, a cult. But it's not a movement. As far as I'm concerned, skepticism is a prudent default setting on these judicial appointments perpetually until proven otherwise. And that's not, an anti, that's not a statement against Neil Gorsuch. That's just my statement in general. That's why I lobbied so hard not to pick a judge. Because the system itself is rotten. But, you know, earlier today I posted a poll on Twitter. Did Donald Trump keep his promise to appoint pro-life judges with Neil Gorsuch? 52% of you said yes. 45% of you said too early to tell. That's probably the right split. Because there's a lot of evidence that he may, he may have done so. But there's a couple of troubling pieces of evidence. They give you cause for pause, especially in light of the track record of the last quarter century we've had here. And not even Reagan, who gave us Scalia. He also gave us Sandra Day O'Connor. She was a disaster. So, I mean, we have, a, we, have a, we have decades, decades of taking the banana in the tailpipe on judicial appointments, even from our own most trusted people. So I think this skepticism is good. Don't let anybody take it away from you. Now, don't let it turn you into an unreasonable curmudgeon that's never pleased, though, either. Don't become that. Okay, But given how often, which is pretty much always, we have taken the shaft on this, I think skepticism is good. I'm seeing people produce graphs. Gorsuch is to the right of Scalia. He hasn't rendered a single verdict on the Supreme Court yet. How do we know that? Let's not go. There was a lot to like about what happened last night. I think we were overall very positive. But let's not go overboard. Okay? It's a tad overboard here. And that's okay. It's okay to be skeptical. It's okay to say, I want to believe, but I'm from Missouri. You got to show me first. That's okay. That's okay. It's not like we don't have a track record of these things. Donald Trump said last night, the President of the United States said, hey, I gave you my word on, my word on this. I'm going to keep my word. He wants you to test the veracity of his word on this thing. Then do so. And that's okay. I don't know why some of our, so many people on our side think that you immediately have to be all in or all out all the time on everything. That's, that's how children think. Adults look at distinctions. And adults aren't afraid to find news they might find troubling because then they just can't, then, then, then maybe they might have to make a decision that, that doesn't require pom-poms. And, and even if you find several things about Neil Gorsuch that give you cause for pause, it doesn't mean you still can't support him. It's okay. It's okay to find out that human beings aren't perfect. It's okay to find out that everybody's got a blind spot. I'd actually like to know what everybody's blind spots are going in so I can navigate around them, including my own. Okay? But, but don't, don't fall for the banana in the tailpipe. Don't drink the Kool-Aid. Okay, and and one more thing on this, a judge's perspective on Chevron. If, I, if you've heard this term, it's not an oil company. Chevron essentially is the is a, is a precedent that says that you that judges should the courts should yield to unelected bureaucrats 
on how far they're allowed to take regulatory power in government. Apparently, Gorsuch is an ace on this. And that's great. You know, I mean, you don't want a regulatory state. It, it, it tramples on jobs, economic growth, your ability to grow your own wage base. Cool. But you know what? A judge's position on Chevron might be important to the Koch brothers, God bless them. But, but that, that doesn't reflect the soul of a nation. A judge's opinion on Roe v. Wade, though, does. Chevron's not going to determine the balance of your civilization, folks. It's just not. I'm sorry. We're not materialists. There's more going on here than what's at the end of our fingers and toes. So Chevron is important. A judge's view on that is important from a limited government liberty freedom standpoint. But it doesn't do anything to add or subtract from the character of a nation. A judge's view on Roe v. Wade, though, does. You're listening to Steve Dace. Listening to it will make you feel American. Glory, glory, hallelujah. It's the glory, Steve glory, Day glory, Show. All right, back here on the Steve Day Show, powered by Conservative Review. Speaking of which, Conservative Review's Daniel Horowitz takes us inside politics now here on the Steve Day Show. And Daniel, it seems like the world has changed. Since you and I last talked here on a Wednesday oh night, God. so much stuff to cover. But I want to begin by getting your reaction to a, a poll I posted on our uh, Twitter account last night uh, that went final earlier today. And I asked people, Donald Trump promised us that he would nominate pro-life justices. That was the promise he made in front of about 100 million people in one of the three presidential debates. Did he keep that promise with Neil Gorsuch? 52% of the people we polled on Twitter said yes. Forty-five percent said too early to tell. Your view? I mean, I'd ask those fifty-two percent where they're coming from. Although I will say, I think the question's a little bit funny because there's a difference between being pro-life and being pro-life. What I mean by that is the same difference of being pro or anti-Obamacare and being anti-Obamacare. Every Republican's anti-Obamacare, except we're seeing now. It's not getting repealed. It's even truer when it comes to the legal profession. The one-directional cesspool, the gravitational pull, makes it as such that you have to have the fortitude of a Clarence Thomas and a Scalia to not get sucked in. So I have no doubt that John Roberts, who is allegedly a good Catholic, is personally pro-life. And I also have no doubt you won't repeal Roe v. Wade. So which do you think we have or do we not know? I don't know. I, you, you know, I, I think that is the most honest assessment, the same way I can't say anything. I mean, Trump was adamant he wanted, he, uh, Trump was adamant he wanted justices that would overturn Roe. Let's face it, we don't get a lot of Republicans running for national office who openly say that. He said that last fall. This is the problem. We have this every time, the soft bigotry of low expectations of the conservative movement. We, we throw around, around the talking points. And, and by the way, I used to vet candidates for a living, you know, for Senate, for House. I used to come up with a very specific questionnaire. 
because I would know this. There's all the platitudes that they all say, and there's a difference between a Ted Cruz and a Tim Scott or a Ben Sass. And it's not so much because on paper they, they disagree on issues. They really don't disagree on much. It's that Ted will actually fight for it. It's a similar thing. Um, we're not going to get a suitor. Right? That's a straw man. We've moved beyond that. You know, all these guys on the list, you know, they're going to be right of center relative to where the legal field is. But the notion that you're going to overturn it, unless they've demonstrated that, you certainly can't assume it by default, especially because the Democrats aren't quite acting like it. That, I mean, I, that's what just makes me a little nervous. Well, if we're not sure, and there's some things about Gorsuch's uh, pro-life views to like. He uh, wrote a book that uh, Ryan T. Anderson, who's a person I have a lot of respect for at Heritage, uh, has been beaming about this pick and uh, what he wrote about end-of-life issues in a book a few years ago. I uh, went and studied, apparently, uh, Kelly Shackelford said in her show last night, uh, one of the uh, chief uh, you know, dispensers of natural law theory at Oxford. Those are all good signs. Um, but I, I think that one of the things I get disturbed by is like there can't be any room for any skepticism at all. I get real nervous. First of all, I'm not a joiner by nature, okay? You know, but but to me, a movement ought to entertain its contrarians. It ought to be able to at least consider their objections and at least overcome a few. But when it starts telling its contrarians you, that that your opinion's just not welcome here, that's when the movement ceases to be one, in my view. Part of the problem is is this. Um, there's a group of thumb suckers, as we used to call them, uh, th- throughout the movement. Uh, you know, for example, Washington Examiner published some sort of op-ed saying, editorial saying, uh, man, this guy's better than Scalia. Just a couple of nights ago, they, they were basically calling Trump's executive order unjust and illogical and immoral. So, you know, that's kind of where the fortitude is on, on that side of the aisle. There's another dirty little secret going on here. The conservative movement at a professional level has become a libertarian movement. Mm-hmm. So if you notice, rather than the first thing out of everyone's mouth, the Obergefell, the gay marriage case, and all of the consequences that have um, you know, occurred as a result of it, it's Chevron doctrine, administrative state. Now, all of us agree that the administrative state is, is too big and that they um, you know, grow the power of environmental labor regulations outside of statutory authority. But the libertarian movement is more inclined, and they're more concerned about using the power of the court as the supremacist authority to strike down bad regs than to prevent them from inducing social transformation without representation. So you don't hear much talk about immigration, election law, affirmative action, disparate impact, and certainly marriage. And and they talk about religious liberty, and there are some baseline good cases from Gorsuch, but the bar is very low, the little sisters of the poor. I mean, I wouldn't expect any of our nominees to have mandated that they fund it. You know, it's just, it's not to say he's not the higher bar. But given history, don't we want to see that? Well, I, I said at the top of the show tonight that given uh, of all the issues we've been screwed on as conservatives over the years, and we've been screwed on them all, of all the issues we've been screwed on, we've been screwed on judges more than any of the rest. Uh, the, the batting average is dreadful. It's abysmal. So to me, a, a perpetual state of skepticism almost seems prudent. 
Um, and and uh, that notwithstanding, I also said just a few minutes ago before you came on, I explained what Chevron is. And yes, it's important to reel in the regulatory state. It stifles jobs, economic growth, your ability to grow your own wages, your own consumer spending levels. I get all of that. But Chevron doesn't determine the character and soul of a nation or reflect it. Someone, a judge's, a Supreme Court justice's views on Roe v. Wade does. Also, I would add one point. Chevron is not the courts doing it, to be clear. It's the blue states or the federal government making bad regs, and they're upset that the courts, the same way they strike down marriage and election laws and election voter integrity laws, that they're not also striking down those executive actions. I I get it, but ultimately, I I do understand where Scalia was actually coming from. Scalia supported the Chevron Doctrine, not because he supported um, overburdensome regs. He was a textualist. But he felt, look, you have a sucky government there. Go, you know, fight back. Let Congress fight back against it. My concern is this. If we are going to have this libertarian thing that we make the courts the sole and final arbiter and aggressively strike down these regs and criminal justice stuff and even guns, but don't have a concurrent equal movement to prevent them from striking down civilization and our history and tradition – it's actually going to empower the court even more to screw us on those issues. Daniel Horowitz is here with us from Conservative Review, taking us inside politics here on the Steve Day Show on the Salem Radio Network. When we come back, I want to get Daniel's take on the way he was rolled out last night, the presentation aspect of this announcement, because coming off of uh, a somewhat uh, erratic uh, weekend performance in, in unveiling uh, President Trump's initial forays into keeping his immigration promises, I think they really needed to hit a home run from a stagecraft standpoint, and I think that they did, but we'll find out what Daniel believes in a moment. Listening to Steve Dace. If you believe in lots of free handouts, this is probably not your show. What is it? Do you want more money? It's the Steve Day Show. All right, back here on the Steve Day Show, powered by Conservative Review on the Salem Radio Network. Daniel Horowitz is here from Conservative Review, taking us inside politics. So let's look at the way this was rolled out last night, uh, just from a presentation standpoint. And, and coming off the somewhat erratic, at least, and we'll get to that in a minute, maybe you'll disagree with me, but I thought the unveiling of the immigration proposals were erratic, especially when you got Giuliani on Janine uh, Pirro's show saying, yeah, it's a Muslim ban, when you they'd spent all day trying to explain that it's not. I, I thought w- with this, their next big foray into promise keeping, especially moving it into prime time, that this, the showmanship level had to be ratcheted up considerably. And I thought, oh, Daniel, I thought they may, I thought they nailed that. What did you yeah, think? It was better than anything Obama or Bush ever did. Um, and, and again, you know, with Trump, every, he's very into presentation. It played certainly into his decision on who that nominee would be. And I think we're looking to roll out someone that looks, that would elicit the reaction of a Rachel Maddow and say, this guy's in the mainstream, the entire rollout evinced that sort of presentation, that the guy's level-headed, very humble, um, but well put together, 
Um, no, absolutely a great job. As far as the rollout of the immigration thing, I'd say there's two aspects. I think one, the conservative thumb suckers are getting wrong, um, but one's problematic. When it comes to the messaging, look, that's going to be a dumpster fire every day of the week. That, that's just never going to get repaired. Uh, you know, it's worse than that. You have Mattis and Kelly going to the media, or at least the media going to them, and they're saying, oh, we weren't informed, I don't know. And, you know, so you have his own cabinet members all over the place. The messaging is bad. But as far as the actual implementation structurally of the exclusion, look, you're going to have that no matter what when you make any bold move. If he would have gave, given a week's notice, you're going to have the protests. You're going to have the court screwing with us. You're going to have all it takes are two or three cases for the media to say, oh, this guy's dying and he couldn't be allowed to come in and visit his mother or whatever. Um, the reality is there's five million people come in. It affected 109 people. You know, fundamentally, you're going to have it anyway. Conservatives need to grow a backbone and fight for it. But, yeah, it would help if we had good messengers. Let me come back to that in a moment and go back to this, because I don't think the messaging always is a, is a facepalm. You look at, you know, one of the things that uh, that someone said to me, in fact, it might have even been David Horowitz uh, said to me on this show last week, is that one of the things conservatives missed with Trump is because he doesn't say all the traditional orthodox terms and, 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 and phrases we're used to hearing from politicians. There's this notion that he doesn't get what we're talking about. Well, well, last night. Last night in the introduction of Neil Gorsuch, I mean, that was an ode uh, to uh, movement conservatism. The, the phraseology that he used, the terminology that he used, the measured tone in which he spoke with to understand the reverence and the, uh, the solemnness of the occasion, the recognition of Antonin Scalia's widow, for example. To me, that was really the first time. I thought the speech he gave the, the morning after he won the election was, was well done in terms of that tone and temperament. But I really thought last night was the first time he sounded credible talking like us your view no there's no question about it and not only did he sound credible talking like us it sounded credible to everyone else too to people that aren't naturally movement conservatives even maybe some people on the left the problem is when you get into isolated policy issues that he either doesn't fully believe fully understand whether it's immigration whether it's health care um, you know, certainly other fiscal issues, forget it. I mean, that messaging is going to be all over the place. But when it comes to branding, branding a particular rollout, I mean, let's face it, that's why he won, to make America great again. He's really good at branding. He loves optics. Um, and like I said, I think that played a big role in, into who he was going to pick uh, as, as the actual nominee. Daniel Horowitz is here with us from Conservative Review, taking us inside politics again here on a Wednesday night here on the Salem Radio Network here on the Steve Day Show. When we come back here in a few minutes, we are going to go back to the immigration issue uh, and the unveiling of uh, President Trump's executive order, uh, which was a temporary, I guess we'll call it, delay, injunction, pause on receiving refugees and immigrants from seven countries uh, that the Obama uh, administration and its Department of Homeland Security, by the way, had flagged itself as places where they were concerned about the vetting process and and who was coming through their screening. And so that's where those seven countries came from. And an odd thing has come up despite 
the the clumsiness, uh, d- despite how erratic at times the rollout of this seemed, and I don't really care about is what Daniel said, the uh, so-called thumb suckers. I'm only looking at this from my own perspective. You know, I spent most of Saturday defending them on social media. I get up on Sunday for church and see that Mike Flynn's kid and the Pizzagate guy and Rudy Giuliani are out there undermining everything people like me did all day Saturday. That's what I'm worried about. But yet, when you look at the public approval numbers of this, they don't necessarily reflect the meltdown we saw in the media. We'll get Daniel's take on that in a moment. Listening to Steve Dace. Some people work for what they get, and some people ask for Uncle Sam to give it to them. I know, but I deserve it. Decide who you want to be and listen to the Steve Day Show. All right, back here on the Steve Day Show, powered by Conservative Review on the Salem Radio Network. So let's get back to Daniel Horowitz from Conservative Review, taking us inside politics. So the reaction of the public uh, to President Trump's uh, immigration uh, rollback over the weekend did not necessarily reflect the meltdown that we saw in the media and on social media about this all weekend long. And Daniel, I'm sure you're going to tell me you're not necessarily surprised by that. Oh, yeah, and it, it's even more than the polls suggest. I always call this an 80-20 issue. And what I mean by an 80-20 issue is it might not poll in the abstract 80-20. It will poll favorably, but the level of intensity, that's very important. You know, you have this on gun poll, polling on gun issues. The level of intensity is all on our side. The poll was taken right when the worst 24 hours of this policy was unfolding, and that's all you saw. Like you said, there was no counter-messaging. There was nobody. I mean, a handful of us were, were doing the PR for them. Um, so there, there was no way of framing it. And also, this is essentially polling on a Muslim ban, and it still polls well. I think we you need to – let, let, me, let me pause right there, because you're making an important point, and I've said this to the audience in the past – in, traditionally, horse race polling is very accurate. Even in this last presidential election, the Real Clear Politics polling average had Hillary winning the popular vote by 2.7. She won it by 2.1. That's pretty darn close to nailing it. Uh, it's the hor- it's the issue based polling you have to be suspicious of because it's all in how the question is framed. So when Reuters is calling up Americans, they're not saying, "Do you believe in the nas- in the prudent national security measures President Trump instilled over the weekend to further tighten and vet who comes into the country to?" protect american citizens that's not the question that's being asked daniel as you well know the question is hey what do you think about trump leaving those refugees hanging high and dry out there to die do you think that's the right thing to do so you have to look at when you look at issue-based question it's almost always framed from the progressive viewpoint so if reuters comes out with a poll knowing the way they're going to question it that and and even the way they question it they get a plus eight favorable almost a majority favorable for what trump tried to do over the weekend then you should add a handicap to what the number really is that's what you're saying and it's only going to get better from here but that that's exactly what it is same way they they frame the obama executive order on transgenderism as discriminating against lgqc they don't say you're discriminating against anyone who doesn't have in their corporate headquarters men peeing in female bathrooms. They, they literally flip it on its head. So in this case, not only is it not a Muslim ban, it is literally current law. It is current law that 
that Dianne Feinstein and 99 Senate Democrats voted, uh, 99 senators unanimously passed after 9-11. Bush and Obama used waiver authority to kind of wave people in. Trump merely returned to base law, plus added a few things with his delegated authority, at, you know, pursuant to another section of the law, and, and, and done. I mean, also, there's no sense of proportionality. They give the sense that the default is Muslim immigration, and we're trying to come up with this radical new thing of shutting it off. The reality is we've never had what we've had over the last decade. We, we bring in 10,000 Somalis every single year. If you ask someone, should we bring in 10,000 Somalis from a failed terror state that literally has no government and data? How is that going to pull? So um, all Trump did were really state-designated designated state sponsors of terror plus Yemen and Somalia, which have no government. So... What I said on our show Monday night is we spent the opening hour looking at everything they did here to roll this out, both good and bad, that we liked. And we viewed this as uh, this is like the first game of the season, the first time you face live competition that is trying to beat you no matter what you do or what you stand for. And and this is where you need to self-scout. This is where you got to look ahead now and realize, okay, this is what the opponent's game plan is going to be. we got to make sure we don't validate it. We we don't feed it. We don't give it any credibility beyond uh, what their own uh, base of people are going to believe what they say no matter what we do. So as you look ahead, as they further try to install, if, he's, if he is serious, as he's been so far about keeping his promises, if they if they further try to go down this road, what do you think they need to do better? What lessons were learned from over the weekend? One thing is they need to coordinate with outside conservatives. They need to give their allies, they need to allow the, their allies to help them help themselves. Um, number two, they got to call the cabinet in ahead of time and get them on message. Planning is everything. You don't have to announce your plans ahead of time to the public. But and, and by the way, just one interjection, they've shown a good discipline in not leaking. If you notice, they're pretty good at that, except when they want to leak. Um, they're very good with the Supreme Court rollout. So don't leak to the media. Leak to your friends. Have your people on, on the same message. And, and I think um, you know, you, you'll do good things. Because one thing I'm concerned about is the following. Trump's going to do a lot of executive action. The perception is going to be, boy, he's just an imperial presidency that I thought conservatives didn't like. The reality is most of what Trump has done so far is applying the base statute. It was the opposite. It was predecessors who were using discretion and waiver authority, like with the fence, with sanctuaries, with um, you know, these Muslim countries. He's got to make it clear we are following existing law. And I th- I think they need to really make sure and tighten down. You're not you're not a you're not a candidate now who's who's a, who's out the, out of the mainstream reality show star that that is known for saying pro- overly provocative things that professionals aren't eager to go work for. So you've got to hire Katrina Pearsons uh, who nobody else wants or Rudy Giuliani who nobody who everybody else thinks is over the hill. He, he's got to really upgrade the talent level of who their secondary proxies are in the media. I think that needs to be done as well no there's no question about it i mean the circus has got to stop i think like you said the tone he set and the demeanor with the scotus rollout that's what he should do with immigration and obamacare just very solemn and say you know my first job is to protect the country we're following existing law our history our tradition um and and just stop this extreme vetting you know trump always self-describes an extreme position to a normal position you make your opponents look extreme.
Great stuff, Daniel. It, it's amazing how we were here last Wednesday, and then like it's like everything hit the fan in just the very first full week uh, since we had you uh, back here last. So a lot to break down. It was a good conversation, brother. Thank you very much. Thank you. I will come back, have some reaction to what you just heard from Daniel Horowitz at Conservative Review in a moment. Listening to Steve Dace. Knowledge is power. I've seen what it can do, and I want to learn more. Gain more knowledge right here. It's the Steve Day Show. All right, back here on the Steve Day Show, powered by Conservative Review here on the Salem Radio Network. So we just heard from our buddy Daniel Horowitz at Conservative Review, who took us inside politics. What stood out to you about that conversation, Todd? Going back to the very beginning, I, I like what he said, and I hope people don't get lost in it. That uh, Are people pro-life, or are they pro-life? And uh, if you haven't seen The Untouchables, you must on this front. When, uh, and, uh, spoiler alert, but when... Uh, Movie's 30 years old, yes. so it's okay. Sean Connery's bullet-ridden body is there, sucking out its last buddy, bloody breaths, but he grabs uh, Kevin Costner's Elliot Ness by the, the shirt collar and just chokes out his last words. What are you prepared to do to stop this madness? And that's what uh, Judge Gorsuch, that's what Donald Trump, that's what they all must be asking on the life issue and all the other various usurpations that we deal with. Aaron? That's well said, Todd. And uh, what stood out to me was towards the end there uh, where uh, Daniel was uh, talking about uh, the rollout of and, and what they need to learn in the future. And um, along those lines, it, it is just uh, incredibly important, I think, for the Trump administration to just keep it simple, stupid. Um, just uh, don't try to make things. Don't try to be too smart by half. Just keep it when you're making these announcements and you're making these rollouts, keep them simple. Make sure everybody's on the same page, because as I stated uh, yesterday or the day before, um, when you get off into the weeds with these types of things, that's where the media likes to play, and that's where they like to lie, no pun intended again. But uh, keep, if you keep it simple, I don't think anybody can have an excuse to uh, misinterpret your words. I, I, I really don't want to—I I really don't want—speaking of getting in the weeds, I, I really don't want to belabor the point of who are the secondary spokespeople. Because I, I could be putting an overemphasis on that because I work in the media, right? And so that's the world I that I live in. But, but, you know, 10 years ago, it wouldn't, if, if, it wouldn't have mattered what Rudy Giuliani, who's not officially with See, the White House, would have said. But 10 years ago, everybody didn't get most of their news from their Facebook feed or their Twitter wall, okay? And so now it does because they remember Rudy Giuliani being one of the faces of your campaign. Even though he's not with you anymore, it does make a difference See, what he says. I, I think the secondary spokespeople are what's keeping stories like this from becoming a one-day story to a two-day story to, to a three-day story. Because at the next press conference, Sean Spicer is going to ask, well, can you respond to what Rudy Giuliani exactly. said about this? That's those, those, I don't think you're putting an overemphasis on that at all. You have, the, you have the, tr- the trappings of the presidency now. There is no excuse for you not to have the best and most informed and up-to-date talent at your disposal whenever you want. 
you can just hand out and, and because especially now Donald Trump has to pay out of his own pocket for that. President Trump just gets to say, "How'd you like to be the uh, under the under M- the deputy ambassador Barbados for spring break?" You know what I'm saying? I mean, so there's no excuse for you not to have the best and most informed voices as your secondary proxies out in the media. No excuse. Listening to Steve Dace. You are now about to witness the strength of knowledge. This is Steve Dace. Raising a banner of bold colors, no pale pastels. People should not be afraid of their governments. Governments should be afraid of their people. Our rights are inherent and essential. Derived from our maker. That is liberty. And liberty will reign in America. This is Steve Dace. And we're back here on the Steve Dace Show, powered by Conservative Review on the Salem Radio Network. Don't forget, we love to know what you think about what we think. Steve at SteveDace.com is the email address. That's D-E-A-C-E. Like us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter at Steve Dace Show. Now, now we work very hard to come up with our own content here on this show. But every once in a while, you guys do our work for us. And you send me an ID and I think, well, son of a gun. That's better than what I was going to come up with, so let's roll with it. Cody DeSuarte, I hope I pronounced, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, Cody. Cody DeSuarte sent me an email a couple of days ago asking me a question. I thought, oh boy, that is a great question, number one. But number two, I'm not sure I can answer that in a Feedback Friday. That, that, that may require a further conversation. And since historical fiction, where you do revisionist history, what if these events changed? Is sort of a hot thing in pop culture right now, right? Like Man in the High Castle, for example, has has basically propelled Amazon's attempt at a subscription television network into popularity, almost unto itself. I thought it would be fun to play that game with Cody DeSuarte's uh, suggestion. And what he's at, what he asked us, gentlemen, is would you be willing to do a breakdown of how things might or might not have been different? If Ted Cruz were the president instead of Donald Trump. Decisions, cabinet appointments, etc. And I think, I don't know what you guys think. I think that might be a fascinating intellectual exercise. You guys up for it? Yes. Let's do this. Let's begin at the beginning. That's always a good place to start. Would we have seen the, the mass... And I don't, maybe I shouldn't say mass because we don't really know how many people there were. Would we have seen organized protests from the left in response to Ted Cruz winning? Would we have seen hashtag not my president in response to Ted Cruz winning? As we as we did with Donald Trump, or or does is that somewhat impacted a because of how high of a negatives Trump had? And, and some of his own disparaging remarks he had made. B, the fact that he didn't win the popular vote. Or C, is that just baked? If the Republicans could have nominated John Kasich, Lindsey Graham, and if they had beaten Hillary Clinton, to some extent, this was going to go down anyway. Let's start there. Let's start the immediate aftermath of the election. 
Would the left have reacted to a President Cruz the way they reacted to a President Trump, Todd? I think C is the answer. It would have happened to some extent. Now, you know, crazy breeds crazy, and they toggle, as you said, they toggle off one of another. So I think uh, Cruz would have been more measured and calculated in talking about uh, certain things. So that, prob- in terms of the overall size of things, for example, would the women's march have happened? Mm-hmm. That probably not to that extent. But other than that, uh, well, and I guess I could need to go back to the immediate aftermath, uh, the, the breaking of windows in Washington, D.C., right. too. So, yeah, everything got ratcheted up to 11 because of Trump. But I, we are living in this world where it it will go on regardless. Aaron. Uh, I think it would have. I think this would have happened or have been worse if Cruz was was wow. um, elected. You think it might have been worse? Yeah, because... Explain. I, I, I think people... Um, I, I don't really know if people are actually reacting to Donald Trump because um, he they think he's actually a misogynist um, with the Women's March or he is uh, this or that, whatever they're projecting, whatever negative projections they have upon him. I think they're just reacting to him because he's tearing down, uh, because he's torn down what they thought they knew about the world. I think with Ted Cruz, people would have been more, more legitimately concerned that he was actually going to take my ability, well, he was going to take my, the uh, government's ability to pay for my uh, baby killing away from me. Uh, he is going to um, defend churches. I think people would have taken him more seriously uh, than they have Donald Trump. Even though Donald Trump's worked out pretty pretty well so far overall, people would have been more concerned with him. Now, that's a fascinating observation. Because I, I agree that people would have, would have thought the st- when Ted, like, I don't know how many people really believed outside of his cult. When Trump said during the debates he wanted to see Roe v. Wade overturned, I don't know how many people on either side really, truly believe that, okay? If Ted Cruz said it, everybody on every side would truly, truly believe that, yep. right? Mm-hmm. So That's exactly what I'm So saying. that's what you're getting at. Yes. So that, that does, I think, reinforce what you're saying, Todd, that the, the protest culture of the left would have been baked into the cake no matter what. Mm-hmm. What I do think, and that's where I would agree with Aaron on, on some of his point, I'm not so sure, though, the the cowbell would have been ratcheted up, or as Todd likes to say, it would have been dialed up to 11, because Cruz, Cruz is, doesn't, is so disciplined. He doesn't give you any of... There's no mustard on the hot dog. He's not giving you anything beyond his ideas. Because that's... Frankly, he's not comfortable arguing the personality stuff anyway. We saw this when he was up against Trump. That's not his M.O. Now, get him in an argument with issues. Like, I bet you he's counting down the days in the, right now in the shower until he goes on CNN next week to debate Bernie Sanders on Obamacare. Mm-hmm. But get him, in a, get him in a put-down contest on a stage with a reality TV guy who's... You know, he was one of Vince McMahon's best buddies. He's way out of his element, right? Right. So, so yes, the, the, the fact that he would just openly, brazenly give the conservative view on every issue would absolutely have created a protest backlash in progressives. I don't think there's any question about that but i'm not so sure that i think todd is right i'm not so sure we would have seen a women's march we would have seen the amplification of it because he's not he's 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 not putting anything else in the sausage he's not putting any mustard on the hot dog yeah whatever reserve the progressives do have in terms of feeling a need to meet 
uh, the right on intellectual terms, and they would see, okay, with Ted Cruz, we know how he operates. Uh, you know, we need to be able to, on some level, work in that re- arena. I don't think they feel that need at all with Donald Trump. Donald Trump gives them total permission to be just total id, just screaming banshees, which mm-hmm. is really where they're the most comfortable. They feel, and we saw this from journalists. They, they've openly, yeah, we've seen journalists right. openly say that some of the canoe aspects of Trump's persona gives us permission to be yep. more honest about who we are. Cruz isn't going to give you any of that. Now, some of you listening to this are going to say, and that's why we don't think Cruz could have won. That's not a, that's not the question we're arguing tonight. That's a separate question. The question on the table would be, if Cruz had won, had won instead of Trump, what would have been different? So I would agree. I think there would have been protests uh, regardless. I just think they would have been different in tone and scope because I agree with Todd on that front. I, I just think he would not have added the ancillary come get some, you know, and your mo- and, and the horse you rode in on and your mama joke that Trump's going to throw in there, okay, which just is encouraging more of that to be dialed up to spinal tapian level, levels. I, I, I don't think and that would have And Sean Spicer would not be press secretary. Well, I, we'll, get to, we'll get to personnel <laughs> here in a moment. Um, the way that, the way Cruz would have sought to bring the country together after the election compared to what Trump did. I thought these were actually some of Trump's finest moments. I thought the way he spoke after the election, I thought, and I thought Barack Obama, and we said this at the time, while our concern that Obama would be like that tenant getting evicted who just trashes the place on the way out did kind of start to happen down the stretch, those, that first week or so, both Trump and Obama, I thought, were at their most statesmanlike during that time to unite the country. Would that have been necessary under Cruz? Because, again, Cruz isn't going to give you a grab them by the privates. Right? Cruz, isn't, Cruz is not bringing in Juanita Broderick. I'm just, I know Ted. He's not comfortable with that stuff. Ted's going to want to, Ted, now Ted's going to pull out Hillary Clinton's still beating hard on issues and feed her with it. But he's not bringing in Juanita Broderick and Kathleen Willey. He's not, there's no videos of grab, that's just not who he is. So there would not have been that level of visceral anger, I don't think. Um, but I also think some of what he would have had to say probably would have come down to, did he win the popular vote or not? What's your take on that, Todd? Well, in terms of just bringing people together, uh, his his default would have gone – I mean, he, he knows the founders. He would have gone towards sweeping rhetoric. He gave a lot of really uh, uh, good speeches, but he he kind of, in my estimation – was a one-trick pony on that front, and you just you, you you knew the words, you knew the tone, you knew the cadence, and even though you f- you believed it, it ha- you knew it wasn't necessarily transcending and getting outside of the bubble. So I can picture the speech about coming together. I've heard that speech before, um, but ultimately it would have just been. I, I think he would have been checking the box. And then moving on to the fight that we all know is there. And it would be the rare rhetorician who can actually, in mere words alone... I mean, this is about action now, right, Steve? It's about mm-hmm. action. Yeah, for Pete's sake, I, I the popular vote, that was a fig leaf all the way for the left. And it kind of relates to the last question. There was always going to be people who take advantage of this from the left, uh, similar to the way the Tea Party groups, the various Tea Party groups did back in 2008 and nine. So um, as far as unifying the country, I, I don't know that it would have been a, a whole lot different in the immediate aftermath. All right, we'll talk personnel next. You're listening to Steve Dace.
You can take the scraps the Democrats want to give you. But I like it here. They let me eat anything that falls on the floor. Or you can work for more. This is the Steve Day Show. All right, Cody DeSuarte is one of our listeners who asked us, I thought, a fascinating question. It would be, an, I think, I hope anyway, I, I think we're having a fun conversation. I hope those of you listening to this tonight are as well. Just a, a game of what if, right? You know, and, and since I spent a year of my life, which I don't regret one minute of, only the way that it turned out. I spent a year of my life uh, doing everything I could humanly do to get uh, Ted Cruz uh, into the White House. I think it's fascinating that somebody asked me, hey, game plan this out for us. Game theory it out for us. If Cruz had won and not Trump, how would things be different? So we've talked about the aftermath, the immediate aftermath, how the left would have reacted. Uh, maybe some similarities, differences between a president-elect Cruz and a president-elect Trump. Uh, how a president-elect Cruz would have chosen to try and reunite the country after the election compared to a president-elect Trump. Let's talk personnel. How much different would the cabinet personnel be under President Cruz, in your view, Aaron, compared to what we've seen from President Trump? You know, it's, let's start with Attorney General. Um, I don't think there would be too much of a difference. It might even be Jeff Sessions uh, as Attorney General. I mean, there could be any number of, of well, I should be careful. There's not very many people like uh, Jeff Sessions, as far as ideology goes, um, in the federal at the federal level, but as far as the Secretary of State pick, there would not be a Rex Tillerson. As far as uh, Steve Mnuchin, um, as far which uh, I think he got uh, confirmed today or his uh, confirmation hearing moved forward. I don't think you would see as many. Uh, he's the he's, he's at Treasury. Yeah, Treasury. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think you would see as many people like that as well. But it's it's hard to tell with a lot of these. Uh, appointments. I think the big one, um, as we've talked about on this show, and maybe the most important one in the uh, cabinet, uh, would be the attorney general. And I don't think it'd be much different. Chief of staff would be. Di- Chief of staff would not be Reince Priebus. It would not. That's, no, it would not be sure. Reince Priebus. Um, the uh, press secretary would not be Sean Spicer. It'd probably be Steve Dace. Did I say that out loud? Um, so really, uh, as far as your messaging goes, as far as who's in your inner circle goes, and as far as who much has uh, the amount of power, there's not really a whole. Well, there is difference as far as uh, press secretary and chief of staff, but as far as who wields the power with um, attorney general, there's not a whole lot of difference. Before I give Mike take on what Aaron just said, Todd, what, how, where would the personnel differences be? I more or less uh, come down where Aaron was. I do say, and I, uh, I don't think it would have been somebody like uh, DeVos. Uh, I think it, who I don't think ha- there's not a shred of her, and she, she's in some jeopardy right now for various reasons. Uh, but I, I don't think uh, she has a shred of this department shouldn't exist at all. And I hope, and I think it's well within Cruz to say that he would put somebody in there whose who, whose plans in a perfect world is to shut that department down. Other than that, it clearly wouldn't be Tillerson. Uh, you were exactly right about uh, the sessions. Um, Mattis is, is well within the uh, ballpark. Uh, so, yeah, on the major ones, I mean, it is weird to say that even with Cruz, and we've been saying it with Trump that we basically are getting a cab that you might even get from a Bush. And I'm not disagreeing with much about what I think Ted Cruz would do relative to um, Trump, which feels odd as I say it. But I guess that's where I am. Well, this one I might be the most qualified to answer, given how well I know the person in hand and some of the people around him. I, I would say... Someone like Sessions would be attorney. First of all, I'll say this. I guarantee you Mike Lee's either attorney general 
or he's the first Supreme Court nom, or he's the nominee mm-hmm. to the Supreme Court. He is Mike Lee is in one of those two positions if Ted Cruz is the president. And if he if and if and if he is the nominee to replace Scalia, somebody like him, and maybe it would have been a Jeff Sessions, would have been the attorney general. Ted is also far more pragmatic than people believe. He just doesn't like me, doesn't think losing is pragmatic, doesn't think betraying your base is pragmatic. So he would have found some prominent cabinet position to give to the other branch of the party. And that might have been a place like a treasury, although Ted's Ted's adamantly for the gold standard. So I could see him putting more of a sound money person in there. But some place, some some place like I could see Ted, for example, making Elaine Chow to Mitch McConnell's wife, secretary of the interior or whatever she's going to run now. I, I could I could see him doing that. Give give throw some major olive branch or two to the other wing of the party that gives them, uh, you know, the, uh, the the feeling that they have a voice. And so they don't have to ne- unnecessarily be at loggerheads because there will be times we'll have to necessarily be at loggerheads. OK, so he would definitely do that. I think where there would be mass changes. So so in terms of cabinet appointments, the names might be different. I agree with you tillerson's an easy one and there would be somebody absolutely more of a hawk more pro-israel absolutely would be in that position mike flynn would not be national security advisor victoria Coates probably would be all right but somebody else would be secretary of state who is more blatantly pro-israel uh more blatantly uh hawkish or reagan-esque in their views of foreign policy tillerson's an easy one to question mnuchin no way but i do think that somebody like him a more a more uh, maybe not like him, but there would be more of a Lindsey Graham, John McCain, Mitch McConnell, Republican or two, given cabinet appointments in order to build bridges. I do think he would do that. I think Todd's read on what would happen at education is correct. I could see Rick Perry being Secretary of Energy under Cruz as well, yeah. except he'd be asked to say different things than what he is saying now. He'd be told it's okay to go out there and say, we're going to try to eliminate this department. <laughs> All right, That's why I want you in charge of it. You ran on eliminating it. That's what we want to do. I could see that happening as well. Where I think you'd see the biggest changes is in White House personnel. Kellyanne Conway would still be around and prominent because remember, she originally worked for who? Ted Cruz. She would still have a prominent role in a Cruz White House. I I think Jeff Rowe would likely be the White House chief of staff or political director and uh, maybe more so political director. I think Jason Johnson, uh, who's Ted, one of Ted's oldest friends in politics and is just a great guy. One of the best people in politics I've ever met. I think he would either be political director if Roe did not get that job, or he would have Bannon's job. He would be the guy who is the 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 Steve Bannon or um, uh, um, uh, the guy for Bush that none of us like, whose name is escaping me. Because Carl Rove. Carl oh, Rove. He gosh. would be that national. He'd be president. You know, advisor to the president kind of a role. Uh, I, I, you're right. Sean Spicer would not be White House press secretary. I have no idea if that would be me or even if it was offered, my wife would allow me to accept it, but it would not be Sean Spicer. I know that for sure. Ryan's Priebus would not. Ryan's Priebus, we'd be all like, remember that Ryan's Priebus guy? <laughs> yes. He'd be out at the RNC. Ted would put somebody like one of his people in there who's a conservative, uh, and he would not be the White House chief of staff. That, that would not even in a ceremonial vein. I mean, he would he I mean, he'd be wearing concrete shoes uh, if Ted Cruz had won. So I think in terms of cabinet heads, while the names might be different, I'm not sure the overall makeup would be much different which I mean that as a compliment to President Trump. But gentlemen, I do think the White House personnel, with the exception of Kellyanne Conway, I think that would be a lot different. 
Yeah, I agree with you. I agree with you, Reed, as well. Uh, it, it is a strange mix, and we've talked about this several times, especially with you know Chief Advisor uh, Bannon on one side, and then um, uh, Priebus in the other year. You really don't know how much either of those guys have a pull. So it would be a lot more cut and dried, I think, uh, White House personnel. Yeah, well, that, you know, as you said, you know these people better than anybody. Now, moving forward, I think the next question is. Uh, in the, the the people that he talked to on a regular basis, Johnson Rowe, how would they would they have helped Cruz be as ac- aggressive as Trump has been in that the is first ex- two weeks? That's exactly where we're going to go next. You're listening to Steve Dace. Listening to Steve Dace. All right, so Cody Desuarte, one of our listeners, sent us an email a couple of days ago and said, "Hey, it'd be fascinating if you guys discussed on the show how different things would or would not be if Ted Cruz had won instead of Donald Trump." So that's what we're doing. So we've talked about the aftermath, how the country would have reacted, how divisive it may or may not have been in comparison to what it was like with Trump, how Cruz would have tried to bring the country back together out of the ele- after the election, how, how that might have been similar or different than what Trump did. We've, we just got through talking personnel where we think in terms of cabinet roster, maybe some names would be different, but the overall makeup probably would not be. The White House personnel, I think, would be dramatically different. Now let's talk priorities. Do you know I, I, who ran on... Here's all the executive orders I'm going to sign day one to undo everything that Obama attempted to do by executive order. Whose campaign platform was that? It was Ted Cruz's. Ted Cruz. Mm-hmm. So I, I not only think he would have matched Trump's aggressiveness, I think it might have actually, this, is, this I think would have been dialed up to 11. I think DACA would be gone for sure. I think the Obama tranny madness stuff that, that uh, Trump left in place, gone for sure. Uh, I think that uh, he would have, in fact, they would have made a major event. They would have wanted to show the country we're getting to work right away. And so I think Team Cruz would have turned day one into what Newt Gingrich did 20 years ago with the contract with America when they took over, which Aaron is too young to remember. Remember, he made them all work at how long it took. To, they promised they were going to get through all 10 items. Remember that? How long it took for them. They were in sessions all night long because they wanted to show the country they were going to keep their word. And I think that's something that Cruz would have set up with his team in advance is they would have set up. I'm literally going right from the parade and I'm in, and I'm in the office right up until the ball starts signing away, undoing, peeling back the layers of Obama's onion. I think they would have turned that in to, uh, to a made-for-television special. So I think they might have been even more aggressive. You make a compelling argument uh, because I was coming in this uh, com- prepared to say something that I think would tick off a lot of people in our audience. I'm working from the premise here that uh, the left will take would would take a Ted Cruz a whole heck of a lot more seriously than it would a Donald Trump and because of that i think the powers that be on the left uh, and in the democratic party and, and leftists around the country would do everything anything and everything up to and include i mean that i think everything would be on the table for them if a Ted Cruz were president and so i was going to i was a, i was prepared to say and i still believe this a little bit that um 
I think Ted Cruz would be a long ways behind where Donald Trump is right now because of Donald Trump's uh, ability to handle the media as well as he does or uh, his ability to throw out bluster as well as he does and throw the media off the scent. That's that's not really something that I got the picture the Cruz uh, campaign. Did. I don't think that's an un- I don't think now that you bring that up, I don't think that's an unreasonable um, uh, potential criticism at all. This is I do wonder and I don't know the answer to this. And I should, because one of the things I helped out a lot with with the campaign was the communication side of things. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know, for example, what the when, when if the, do I think they would have nominated somebody like Scott Pruitt for EPA? Heck, I, th- I could see if if Mike Lee was going to replace Scalia, I could see Scott Pruitt being named attorney general of the United States. And so, yeah. And so in a traditional, you'd have more of a traditional Republican, albeit more conservative, media mechanism than what you have under Trump. So you nominate Scott Pruitt. We know what the left does. Meltdown, right? What what is the now the Ted Cruz I know would not look for a diversion. Right? He, mm-hmm. he would he would he would stand there see, and want to and just want to tr- and see if he could clobber all of these pitches out of the park. But then after a while, when they throw fifty pitches at you mm-hmm. at once, not even you know Babe Ruth can hit all of those balls. Is that what you're saying? That's that's the direction that I was going. That yeah, we I think Cruz would be well behind where Trump is right now because of that. But I think it would also be because Cruz is trying to win and start and win an argument, whereas Trump is not doing that right now. So I think what we're getting from Trump in the big picture is empty calories, but with what we'd get with Trues, maybe a little bit longer to accomplish, but it's actually accomplishing something in the long run. All right, so Todd, you settle the, you, you, you break the tie on this conversation. I, I generally go with Aaron. At this point, we're not even two weeks in. He might might be somewhere close, but over time, I think he would fall behind uh, because I I don't think it's uh, within his in, in instinctively based on things you've told me, Steve, as well. You know, I, I believe strongly, and I did this I think before Trump was even elected. Whoever the president is has to be going at multiple issues at once, and you're going to lose some of them. But you cannot let the left just tee off on one of them. And like I think Cruz would want that opportunity a little too much. You said in the past about him that he would not want to move forward. Mm-hmm. on something until he just made sure he had everything battened down. Mm-hmm. I, I get that, and I respect that. Now, Trump goes too far the other way. He's just like, I'm going to go do whatever I want to, and I'll apologize for it later. Um, but I, I think it could hamstring Cruz in wanting to always do battle that way. You need to be able to be juggle many chainsaws at once. Well, we're out of time, but there's one X factor here that we don't know, and that is how would Donald Trump have reacted to Ted Cruz being president. Because I think we all know he doesn't just go away, right? That's that's your X factor in this environment that's impossible. To yes. Have. You're listening to Steve Dace. Wake up, America, before it's too late. The Steve Day Show. Now for something completely different. We need to have a talk about an excursus on natural theology. I prefer metaphysics to theology. See, there's no guild in baseball. What in the wide, wide world of sports is going on here? Can we talk about something else? Certain aspects of his culture may seem absurd, perhaps even offensive. We have cut the culture crap and get to the hotel. We got to get some buzz going. So let's do it. Let's get some buzz going. This is the Nightly Buzz. We take a look back at some of the headlines we didn't have time to get to earlier in the show. But because 
Our producer Aaron has noticed they are trending on your social media or at the water cooler where you work. He's got those headlines, and uh, we've got the hot takes. Thank you, Steve. First story is something we didn't get to yesterday. The Boy Scouts of America have made it clear they do not care about children who are being abused by their parents for uh, cross-dressing and acting like the opposite sex. Well, I don't know how you call yourself the Boy Scouts if you're letting in girls. I mean, I understand the Big Ten now has 14 teams and the Big 12 has 10. Um, <laughs> I, I, but, but, but how are you the Boy Scouts if you let in girls? These would seem to just be the, the Kid Scouts. And, and I don't think anybody should be surprised by this. You know, we are incapable of, of stopping midstream as a species in the midst of slippery slopes. All the stuff we're doing now, Todd, it's all stuff that when I started doing this 10 years ago, when I made the switch from News Talk Radio, or from Sports Talk Radio to News Talk Radio, when we started having these conversations, we were, we were, at, we were at the precipice of Pandora's box, kind of looking at it. Should we open it? You know, we hadn't touched it yet. You know, we're kind of, we got the key to it. We're looking at the keyhole. Should we slip it in? What happens if we do? Right? We'll wait and just yeah, unleash yeah, this yeah, on Aaron's yeah, generation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, we were kind of contemplating what to do with Pandora's box at that time. Uh People like me, I know I did these shows when I first started 10 years ago, 11 years ago now. Everything we're doing now, I warned, would be mainstream if we opened Pandora's box at that moment. And at that time, everybody said, you're a bigot, you're reactionary, stupid slippery slope argument, and now here we are. So this should not surprise anybody as a species. Robert Bork in, in life was wrong about very little. One thing, though, he was wrong about is when he said we are slouching towards Gamora. We are not. We are sprinting. This is what we are as a species. Once we head down the slope, we just keep slip, slip, sliding away. And unfortunately, the reaction I'm imagining now, because uh, a lot of uh, Boy Scout and Girl Scout troops are tied to particular uh, church membership. And I saw it in my own experience with my four daughters. My two oldest ones did start out in Girl Scouts. You know, I, I'm a I, I was I'm a boy, so I was never in Girl Scouts myself. I had heard some of the rumors. I read into it. Well, I said, let's start out locally. Sure enough, within less than a year, uh, we had to pull them out. Uh, but the excuses that are made, well, I know that's going on nationally, but locally, no big deal. We can control it here. I'm sure the excuses are made when the exact opposite instinct. Locally is where you have the power. If you would act locally, you could change this. But you won't. Next story, California has banned state-funded travel to Kansas after determining the Sunflower State is one of four in the nation with laws that it views as discriminatory towards gay people. The policy could prevent public universities in California from scheduling sporting events with Kansas teams and raises the question of whether teams will travel to Wichita in 2018 when the city is scheduled to host two rounds of the NCAA men's basketball tournament. Well, first thing, stylistic issue here. I hate to play ombudsman on the radio, but there aren't any gay people. There are men and women. Only two variations of the species there are. There are men who may like to have sex with men and women who like to have sex with women, but they're not a different species. There's only men and women. That notwithstanding, it appears some travel bans are good. It appears some bans actually do work in the minds of the left. So uh, this is just more uh, idiotic, blatant hypocrisy from these people. And as I said, it, it views as discriminatory towards gay people that's that's their view and as a tangential matter my wife uh, smartly always reacts to these issues like when when and is it tomorrow is it the next day are we going to have to deal with the boy who thinks he's a girl competing with one of my daughters on the field i mean we know it's we've already seen yeah, this it's in already UFC. happening you've seen this in ufc right it's happened in ufc before 
I forfeited a wrestling match when I was like eight years old because I didn't want to wrestle a girl. Because it wasn't, yeah, I mean, I've, I've had to deal with this in my own life as well. Not that I'm a victim here, but it's, it's already here and it's been here for a long time. Uh, let's see, next story, uh, another science alert. The uh, earliest known human ancestor was a Microsoft, uh, microscopic sea creature with a huge mouth, according to scientists. The freaky-looking thing that uh, scientists are calling a social justice warrior, warrior uh, lived about 450 <laughs> million years ago and now takes the prize as humanity's earliest ancestor, according to a stu- study released on Monday. I, you know what? I think that should just stand on its own. I've got a little something. Science, Science! Is, is totally unsure about when our humanity begins in the womb and which gender we are, going back to the last discussion. You can't trust a five-day forecast, but you can't trust 10,000-year-old <laughs> yes, climate models. absolutely yes. sure about this. Okay, then. Uh, last story, a uh, bit of tolerance from Nancy Armour. Good, I like USA to feel today. the tolerance flowing through you. Yes. She says, Tom Brady no longer gets a pass on his friendship with Donald Trump. Not after this weekend, when the country boiled over in rage and indignation at Trump's decision to turn America back on refugees. Not after the season when Colin Kaepernick was uh, pilloried from coast to coast for trying to draw attention to the shortcomings of our country. And not when he's about to command the NFL's biggest stage, he can expect to get some tough questions about Trump, as well he should. You can It's a free country. You can ask whatever questions you want. I mean, if you want to make a total clown out of yourself, you want to... You want to listen, if, if, if your goal is to make yourself a bi-coastal party that appeals to about... 20% of, 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 you know, America's square footage, then by all means, you are free to go about doing so. And, and that's what things like this do. You know, I don't think LeBron James has to answer for why he supported Hillary Clinton, uh, at least not as, well, let me put it this way. When LeBron James shows up at a campaign rally for Hillary Clinton, sure he does. But I don't think he has to answer to that, you know, during the media day of the NBA finals. Tom Brady shows up at the campaign rally of Donald Trump, then yeah, I have, I have no problem with him answering for that. But the Super Bowl isn't the forum for such. But these, but for progressives, they just can't help it. It's like when PBS wanted me to help them with a video they were doing at Thanksgiving, how to talk to people who voted, who didn't vote the right way at Thanksgiving. And my answer was, don't. Don't talk to him about it. It's freaking Thanksgiving. It's not your day. It's not your time. It's not about you. This is for this is about for other things other than whatever your personal political grievances are. And the Super Bowl is America's largest secular holiday. This isn't the time and place for it. Aaron and I were laughing the other day because a reporter actually asked an Atlanta Falcons player if this was a must-win game. Oh, I saw that. <laughs> this grief. question about uh, asking Brady about his political beliefs at the Super Bowl is just as dumb. Listening to Steve Dace. For a written transcript of this show, start writing really fast. Right now, Steve Dace. All right, so next hour, we've got Worldview Wednesday coming up. And we're actually going to do two rounds of three questions. So we're going to have our normal three-question segment to lead off the round with, uh, with Aaron. But for Worldview Wednesday, we're going to play another round of three questions. And we're going to tackle uh, three questions that uh, I've been getting uh, a lot 
uh, from uh, members of the audience and uh, on social media. Two of them in particular are timely, given you know some of the uh, policy debates we're having in the country right now. And they're, they're all of a theological variety. And, and Todd, these are the sorts of questions that you have been kind of urging me for the last few weeks or months to spend some time on the air. In fact, I, I, I sent you guys an email a couple days ago saying, okay, let's, let's do this for Worldview Wednesday, and then you email me back. I don't think we're gonna. I don't think the country's gonna make it to Wednesday. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Have we? <laughs> well, we're here. We're here, nonetheless. Why do you think these are so important for us to answer at this time? Well, they're always important, but whenever we do delve into this, the the reactions we often get is, you know, I I've heard the same answer before, but the way you talked about it. Um, was really compelling, or the analogies you made. Uh, we always seem to hit pay dirt with, with these, uh, and I think the you know we are going to talk about it for uh, multiple uh, segments. But we 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 get in and we get the. It's important in having these conversations to have it not have feel weighty like a tome. I mean, the topic, the notion we talk about it all is burdensome. We are talking about ultimate things. That's rough sledding. If you can get in and you can show people that it's manageable, you can do it with wit. Uh, so I, I just think the total package, we keep hitting pay dirt with it, so we should keep doing it uh, because I don't think anybody's doing it better. Because I, I, most of our, I mean, our, our audience is very well informed because, I mean, they, if, if they listen to this show, I, I don't think you can't help but not be. Um, but still, there are questions, there are things that uh, hit all of us, including myself and all of us on the show, that maybe, well, maybe not Steve and maybe not Todd, I'll just speak for myself, but uh, there are st- still things that hit us that we see charged about our faith, that we see charged about our worldview, that's like, eh, how do I how do I address this? How do I um, try to winsomely address this? And so these conversations are important to have, and that's why I like having on the show and looking forward to Hour 3. So these are going to be conversations that deal with... Um, um, a, a biblical view on immigration, a biblical view on refugees, a biblical view on uh, national security, and a biblical view on the environment. People are probably like, "I didn't." What do you mean that there's a biblical view on these things? I thought uh, I thought that there wasn't. I, I, I thought that, or that if there was, it was just all social justicey. Right? You know, it's amazing when you crack open that book. And don't be shy. It's the number one bestseller of all time. It's amazing when you crack open that book that it has some very profound and surprising things to say. But we'll get to that next hour. You're listening to Steve Dace. This is Steve Dace. Raising a banner of bold colors, no pale pastels. People should not be afraid of their governments. Governments should be afraid of their people. Our rights are inherent and essential. Derived from our maker, that is liberty. And liberty will ring in America. This is Steve Dace. And we're back with Hour 3 here on the Steve Dace Show, powered by Conservative Review. On the Salem Radio Network, Worldview Wednesdays coming up here in about 15 minutes, your college philosophy class on the radio. Don't forget that we love to know 
what you think about what we think. Steve at SteveDace.com is the email address. That's D-E-A-C-E. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Steve Dace Show. It's time for three questions. We all have questions. Who am I? Why am I here? Where am I going? Who am I? A search and a question of identity. Why am I here? A question of meaning and purpose. Where am I going? question of destiny. Some better than others. What sort of morality or proto-morality would you expect to find in a chimpanzee troop? Injecting some levity into the demise of Western civilization. It's three questions on the Steve Day Show. Indeed, it's that time of night when our producer Aaron decides, hey, Dad, I've got my learner's permit. Why can't I drive? So we say, okay. Especially because it's at the very end of the show when most of you are asleep and about half our affiliates only take the first two hours and not the third hour anyway. So how much harm can be done letting Aaron drive the car with almost no one on the road? So this is three questions. He gets to he gets to ask us any three questions about any three things. Nothing is off limits. There is one rule, though. He has to answer the same questions himself. How much harm can be done? Challenge accepted. Question one, if you could extract... <laughs> well played. If you could extract two people... People from any time in history and stage a debate, who would they be, what would be the topic, and choose one currently living person to come sit in the front row? Oh, that is a great question. That's one of the best questions that's ever been asked on this segment. A few years ago, uh, there was a book, I don't think a lot of people read it, but it still sits in my library, and it's uh, called um, uh, If Paul Debated Muhammad, I believe is what it's called, or Paul versus Muhammad. And it's it's a it's a book about what in, in the future we perfect holographic technology, and this academic institute decides they're going to recreate holographically, three dimensionally, uh, Saint Paul and Muhammad, and download every known thing we know about them into the interface. Everything we know that we can attribute words to them. Now, Muhammad couldn't read or write, so we're kind of guessing um, what he actually said and didn't say in the Quran. Um, but, uh, you know, Paul obviously is a known scholar. His words are a little bit easier to trace. But everything that is known to history about both of these two men, put them on a monitor at this football stadium and just let them go at it with a moderator for an hour and a half. And it's a fascinating book. I'd probably choose those two. Because I think you touch on several different aspects, not just the theological and eternal ramifications, which are, are first and foremost, but there's contemporary socio-political aspects to this as well. Obviously, with the daily challenges, strands of Islam provide those of us in the West, Paul's ability to speak to those socioeconomic issues, first and foremost, as a Jew himself knowledgeable on the law, knowledgeable on the history of the Jewish people, their claim to the land, uh, and then also uh, from a Christian perspective as the guy that's the leading writer of the New Testament. So I think he'd be uniquely qualified to address a lot of those issues. And it would be fascinating to hear how Muhammad himself would react uh, to what has become of Islam in his time. Because if you read the Quran and if you study the history of Muhammad, he has exhibited during, he exhibited both the course of his, during the course of his life, both some of the beautiful things we've seen come out of his religion and some of the ugliest things come out of his religion. And so it would be interesting to get clarification from him once and for all on some of these issues. And maybe the clarification we would get is there isn't a clarification. That would be fascinating to watch that too. And then I think if I could pick one person to sit in the front row for this conversation, I'd pick the most powerful person in the world right now to do so. And that would be the President of the United States to sit there. Although I have to tell you, 
based on what I have seen from him in the last year, I'd be highly tempted to put the most visible Christian leader on the planet in the front row, because maybe then he can learn a few things as well, meaning the Pope. But but the reality is that the policy implications are more powerful coming from the president. So I put him in the front row of that conversation. Lots of answers to this, but I think I'll go with, let's say, um, John Adams versus Thomas Jefferson, and you could... You could put in James Madison and said and pick some for Jefferson and pick somebody else for John Adams. But the debate would be about the long term sustainability of the American experiment and how the essentials implanted uh, in the Constitution were for all times and all places, not just that time. And the person I would want to be in the audience would be your average elitist progressive. So that they can see, even in their differences between John Adams and Thomas Jefferson, the, any question that progressive from the audience would come up with would sound like absolute folly to both men. I uh, I like both of your selections uh, so far. Um, I would I would do, and this is I know this is from current times. Uh, the, there was no qualifier about um, these people having to be dead. So I do William Lane Craig versus Richard Dawkins. I don't know if you guys are familiar sure. with William Lane Craig. He's one of the foremost um, philosophers, Christian philosophers. He is um, he, he's he's done a lot of debates. Richard Dawkins will not debate him, uh, which is why I want to see this happen. Is he the course. guy that debated Christopher Hitchens by yes. any chance? Mm -hmm. He's he's done that. that. Yep. Um, and I, I would love to see that debate, and I would love to see any average social justice warrior in the front row. And I think the topic would be something along the lines of. Who gets to make the rules around here? And it would be a, a discussion of natural law versus whatever the heck uh, atheists believe in, which would be whatever law seems fit today when I look at my, at, uh, my mirror. Uh, question two, what's the most vivid metaphor or illustration you've heard that helped you understand something in a new way? There's a lot of things I could pick here as well. I, I will use one just off the top of my head that I have used as an illustration on our show many times because it really struck home with me. Uh, and, and that is the, the metaphor of the observer of a parade route. And this is something that uh, was, was brought to me when I took my first discipleship class as a believer. And the idea of how God sees time compared to how we see it. You know, we see it, even if we have a great seat, we can only see time one float, one marching band at a time. Where God has a vantage point where he can see it. Uh, from the beginning, the middle, and the end, and he can see it simultaneously. That really struck home with me. And then there's another metaphor that I've used on this show too, Todd, and that is of the uh, of the of the master potter. And someone brings him a piece of clay that is very valuable to them one day, and it has been shattered into so many pieces, many of them small, and it looks like it's unrecoverable, it's unredeemable, but they think this is the best potter there is, he can put it back together. And so day after day after day, he takes all these little shards of broken clay and he puts them on his, on his wheel and he tries to put them back together to make them whole as they are, and he just can't. But then after a while, he gets an idea. And he can put them back together, but still the cracks of where they were once broken is still, are, are still visible. He can't smooth out all of the rough edges. And so the idea is he decides he's going to use it for a storefront display. And so he takes a candle and he puts it down into this pot and puts it in the front window. And so now when people walk through the display, they no longer see the cracks in this refinished, That's nice. this redeemed mm -hmm. pot of clay, but they see the light shining yeah. through the cracks. That's a very good and powerful illustration, I think. Uh, I, I actually had in my head a notion of uh, time as well, and the 
a pastor a long time ago um, was talking about how God sees exactly what you're talking about all of time. Um, and to somehow get that to be tangible, and he picked up a pencil and looked at it the long way, beginning and linearly, that's how we see time. Then he turned the pencil so that all you can see is the fine, sharpened point. And that's how God sees all of time. We're seeing mm. it's the same exact thing, mm-hmm. but the vantage point changes entirely. That's nice. I think the best metaphor, uh, and this is found in the Bible, but when I actually understood um, this, that's kind of when the light came on. But it's the uh, it's it's uh, the relationship between Christ and the church, and uh, the relationship is like uh, between a bride and a groom. That I think is powerful because it's uh, once you get a proper understanding of a husband role or the wife's role or bride uh, bride's role and the uh, groom's role. Uh, that's easy to get at a human level, but then when you apply that to um, the relationship between Christ and the church, I think that's powerful as well. Question three, uh, what's the chore you dreaded most as a kid? Uh, we lived on a street in Michigan called Royal Oak Street in Wyoming, Michigan, suburban Grand Rapids. And do you want to know why it was called Royal Oak, guys? Because it had Royal no Oak trees. leaves that Cause, fell? Because it was royally loaded with oaks. <laughs> All right, We had something like 14 Royal Oaks uh, or oak trees in our front and backyard. And when autumn would come around, especially because you know me, I either want to be out playing it or watching it, right? Okay, football season. When autumn would come around and this uh, the days before leaf blowers and, and let's just mulch up the leaves, when you had to actually rake that stuff up, mm-hmm. dreaded, absolutely dreaded those days, Todd. Yeah, that's no fun. Uh, a chore I didn't like. M- mowing the lawn, not because I, I still enjoy mowing the lawn, but my dad was a lawn Nazi. And that thing, I mean, it's like every three days. It grew a little bit. Get out there, son. And it's got to be vertical one day, horizontal oh, the next day, diagonal whoa. the next, right? Yes. Uh, getting the cows back in when they got out, that was sometimes uh, really stressful. You're listening to Steve Dace. Personally, believe elitism, Marxism, atheist, government intervention, secular humanist, liberals and conservatives, materialism, nihilism, U.S. Americans, Christian, globalist, socialist, democracy, worldview, as the word suggests, is how we look at the world around us. How do we understand life as it hits us in the face? Libertarian, Tea Partier, the free market. Nobody is without a worldview. The only question is, is it a good one or a bad one? So it becomes the glasses, the spectacles, the filter through which they're actually seeing life. And the whole universe and the world and human life is understood through that lens. This is Steve Dace. And this is Worldview Wednesday, or as we like to call it, your college philosophy class on the radio. And the good thing about doing philosophy this time of night is if you're still tuned in and you are at attention, you can't shut your brain down, so we're going to continue to work that uh, puppy for you. But if you're if you're tuned in this late, it might be because you can't sleep. And so the minute we start talking philosophy, you're out. You're out. And, and, and either way, we have a, a batch of satisfied customers every Wednesday night here on this radio program. So we just got done playing three questions, right? We're going to play it again. But we're going to do so from a worldview standpoint, because I have been given three questions a lot uh, or variations of these questions from people uh, quite a bit in the last couple of weeks. And Todd has been clamoring for us to address some of these topics. So I figured let's just address them all 
in the context of one Worldview Wednesday. So we've got three segments of Worldview Wednesday. I'm going to address each of these questions in, in each segment. Okay? And then you guys can feel free to follow up uh, with your questions, comments, or insults. All right? So here's the first question I've had. Steve, is, is it a contradiction for you to be pro-life and anti-refugee or for pro-aborts to be pro-abortion and pro-refugee? Right, Because the implication would be, if you're pro-life, why don't you want to help the refugees? If you are for killing babies, then why are you for helping refugees? Right, That there would be a double contradiction there. Now, one of the things we... This is a very good question. All three of these are good questions. That's why we're going to address them. At least we hope they are. We wouldn't want to address bad questions. Well, not for an entire hour. We would like to be snarky on a Feedback Friday for about five minutes. But we, weren't, we wouldn't substantively address bad questions. Um, one of the things we often point out, you know, ph- philosophy as a science has laws like any other science does, right? And, and so for one statement to be true, the, so, must, so must the inverse be true, right? So it would make sense to say that if you're pro-life, you must be pro-refugee. And if you're anti-refugee, you must all, you, you can't say that you are for killing babies, but you're pro-refugee, that those things are contradictions in terms, right? And so that would make sense on the surface. But see, the question of what to do with refugees for a biblical worldview is not relegated to the moral principle or even the justice principle, all right? But there is also a jurisdictional principle that has to be addressed okay so let me let me give you an example in in romans 13 saint paul writes that government exists to bring the sword of righteousness or vengeance in other translations the sword of righteousness or vengeance against the evildoer meaning that government exists for the punishing of bad the way government protects the good is it punishes evil Okay, yet elsewhere in the in that same New Testament, not in Romans, but in another part part of the New Testament, Paul writes that mercy triumphs over judgment. Now, how do we reconcile these things? Is Paul bipolar? Did he have when he wrote one day? Did he listen to some hippy dippy music and he was feeling you know up with people? And then when he wrote the other part the next day, he had experienced some criminal calamity and he wanted the hammer to drop. Uh, How do you explain what would seem to be from the same source glaring contradictions? How can you have a sword of vengeance or righteousness against evildoers and then turn around and say that mercy triumphs over judgment? We have to look at the audiences that are being communicated to and how they're being communicated to and what is being communicated to them. Paul is addressing two different jurisdictions. When Paul writes to the church in Rome, he is writing to a church that is that is that is there in the backdrop of the seat of governmental power on this planet at the time. And so one of the chief things that they had to figure out how to navigate as believers in Rome was this is the this is the seat of power. This is where law, power comes from in a worldly construct, and yet you're asking us to live counterculturally. I mean, how do we navigate this, right? Because when in Rome, do as the Romans, right? Well, I, the Bible doesn't tell us we get to do as the Romans, actually. It wants us to do as Jesus told us to do, even when we're in Rome or no matter where we're at. So how do we, how do we navigate those things? So in Romans 13, Paul is specifically dr- addressing the jurisdictional power and authority of government as, a, as an entity. As an institution. Elsewhere in the New Testament, when he writes, mercy triumphs over judgment, he's talking to the jurisdiction of the believer or the church as a whole and what its mission is, where it serves in the world. 
When we are to be kind to refugees or the alien and sojourner, and by the way, sojourner means journeyman, passer through, doesn't mean squatter. All right, they didn't have people just move into Old Testament Israel and say, well, I've lived here long enough, so I get to speak, I get to speak, uh, you know, my native uh, tongue. Uh, you know, I get to speak Moabite and worship Moabite gods, and you guys have to go along with this. Because, I'm a dreamer, don't you know? Exactly, because of uh, tolerance and diversity and uh, amnesty. No. As long as you were willing to conform to the law, down to changing your religion, conversion, religious conversion, that there is no God but Jehovah. As long as you were willing to do that and you were too willing to abide by the law, you were welcome to stay. You were not welcome to steal. You were not welcome to say, this land is my land now. I've lived here long enough. No, that's not the way that it worked. But that's probably a separate question. But it ties somewhat into this conversation. When we're talking about kindness and compassion to refugees, I just did over Christmas, what did I just do? I just did a program, a charitable program, for a group called Heart for Lebanon. Who were they trying to serve? Refugees. Okay? Now, did I demand that the government move these people into your neighborhoods if they can't be security screened? Did I demand that? No. Did, I, did, I, did, did we demand the government fund this? Did we tithe with other people's money? What do we call it when you tithe with somebody else's money? You know what that's called? Stealing. Because if you took somebody else's money, that is called theft, no matter what you meant to do with it, Robin Hood. Okay? So, no, I asked us as believers to step up with what resources God has directly provided us to help these people, to have a heart for the, Le- the, the refugees in Lebanon. That's what we did. But the, that's the jurisdiction of the church. The government's number one role and duty on this planet is to punish evil. And if you have watched the rape crisis that has gone on in Europe... If you have seen how easy, why did President Obama shut down the Iraqi refugee program for six months in 2011? Because we couldn't screen, uh, adequately screen who was coming in. And he was concerned that people were pretending to be interpreters and that they were, uh, that's not, they, they, that word didn't mean what you and I think it means. So that is the government's primary responsibility. Its primary responsibility is not the dispensation of charity, the dispensation of mercy. That is the church's responsibility. The government's responsibility is security. Safety by punishing evil. So unless you now, if you remove the jurisdictional question from government, then, yeah, it would seem as if this would be a contradiction, but only if you don't have a proper view of government. If you have a proper view of the role of government, then it's not a contradiction at all because it's a question of jurisdiction. The the government has its jurisdiction and the church has its on a question like this. We'll have some follow up to this in a moment. Listening to Steve Dace. It's about convictions, not positions. Steve Dace. All right, let's get some follow-up to the first of our three questions that we're answering here on A Worldview Wednesday. What about the question of refugees? It is a hypocritical 
to be pro-life and anti-refugee. Well, I don't. I'm not anti-refugee. Like I just said, I just spent a good how many time, how many day nights on our show during three Christmas weeks. time three helping weeks. refugees. I just don't think the government's responsibility is to do so because the Bible says it's not. The Bible said the Word of God says that the government's responsibility is to protect us from the people who would pretend to be refugees and instead want to do harm to us. That's the church's responsibility. The church is an entity that works without borders. Governments do not, Todd. Do you have any follow-up on that? Well, also from the perspective of transcendence, we respect uh, the issue of pro-life not because it's fundamentally a political issue, but because it is a transcendent issue. But beyond that, our country is established based on transcendent issues. If we cannot match up our notion, our bedrock notion of what those are with the people who would seek to come here sooner or later, we are committing cultural suicide, which is not an indictment of the refugees as a human person, but we must ultimately work and look at, I mean, we're not doing so good with the group we have right now. Mm-hmm. This group, uh, and we've taken this for granted. The Ohio lot. State terrorist yes. was a Somali yes. refugee, yes. for example. We've taken it for granted that you can just kind of put this American experiment on autopilot. The founders knew well enough that that was impossible. Yeah, and quickly, I think another way of saying this and summing this up is if you have the attitude, if you have a heart for refugees, and I see a lot of Christians just pouring out um, their sympathy for refugees, if you have a heart for refugees that's good and healthy and righteous but do not conflate that don't conflate your christian attitude with policy in this situation the reason why why uh, christian attitude uh, is uh, carried over in the policy on abortion because the government's job is to protect its own citizens. It is one of those uh, things in this life that it, it may not make sense uh, right away, but it is, uh, it, it's something that you, uh, I think, that, that every Christian has to come to grips with. It's the U.S. Constitution. Yes. It is not the Sudanese Constitution. Yes. It is not the Nigerian Constitution. It's not the, it's, it's not the planetary Constitution. It is the United States Constitution. And the number one and, and really only role of the United States government is to protect and defend the citizens of these United States. Now, if, if, if investing in protecting and defending, if the citizens of these United States decide that, that it's, it's, it fits that mission to be involved in foreign uh, affairs that, that would protect and defend their own interests, God bless them. But that is the first priority of the U.S. government. Along those same lines, here's another one I've been given. Jesus wouldn't tell us to build walls. Now, let me start with basic theology. Basic theology is, if you're a Christian, is you believe in the Trinity. You believe that God is three in one. And no, it, water doesn't explain it. I've heard people say water is how you explain the Trinity. No, you don't. Uh, because people say, well, water can be liquid, it can be vapor, it can be, uh, it can be frozen. Okay? Can it be all those things simultaneously? No. It can only be in one of those states at a time. So when you use water... As your explanation for the Trinity, like the book The Shack did a few years ago, congratulations, that's a heresy known as modalism. All right, the idea that God, the Trinity can only exist in a mode at a time. All right, no, the, God exists in, in the Christian worldview, has, has existed in these three persons in one through all time simultaneously. Right? So in the Christian worldview, when you read in Genesis when God says, let, let us make man in our own image, let, let us make man and let us make man in our image, who's the us? Who's the our? Well, in the Christian view, he's talking to himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So therefore, the God in the Old Testament who says to the Israelites, go into Canaan, you are my instrument of righteousness against these pagans, 
conquer them under my will and I'll give you their land, is the same God that died on the cross. In fact, our church right now is doing a study of Colossians, where Paul really takes what is called Christology, to meaning the study of the nature and person of Jesus Christ to a, to a higher level. And he says, hey, nothing was created without Christ. Everything has been always done for and through him. Meaning he's God. Emmanuel, God with us, God in the flesh. That's the song we just sang at Christmas time. Which means the God who said to Nehemiah, I want you to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the walls of your civilization is Jesus. Same guy who said, love your neighbor as you love yourself. Okay? So uh, there's not two separate gods. Congratulations. Uh, your name's Marcion. You're a heretic. We, 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 we got rid of you about a thousand years ago. You're wrong on that, too. All right, there's not the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament. Okay? Um, it's just God. Incontrovertible, unchangeable for all of time. So the same God that told the Israelites to create private property, gave them Mosaic law, and then gave them proper private property, including boundary stones, and they couldn't even move. And sent Nehemiah back to rebuild the walls. That's Jesus. More in a moment. You're listening to Steve Dace. Want your country back? Keep listening for instructions. This is Steve Dace. All right, you guys' reaction to the second of our three theological questions I have gotten recently that I wanted to address on this Worldview Wednesday. The idea that Jesus wouldn't tell us to build walls, except he already did. Aaron, your thoughts? This is another one of those um, objections or phony. It's it's just a phony objection. It's not even a, a real objection. This is one of those things that we should look at as an opportunity uh, to inform um, our either unbelieving uh, brother or neighbors um, and even those uh, Christians who try to who aren't maybe as informed about this. This should be seen as an opportunity. I see this all the time, especially on social media, where Jesus wouldn't do this, Jesus wouldn't do that, and um, I, that's that's really nice of people to to think that they can speak for the most powerful being in the universe. Uh, but this is an opportunity. We should all see this as an opportunity to inform rather than just get ticked off or um, other you know have other reactions as well, because this is something that's uh, that's so common. And what is you know, a- if only Todd. Someone had let, he, Jesus had left us some record, uh, some framework by which we might be able to go back and find out how he, what he would do in these situations. But alas, none exists, so we're on our own here. Yeah, I, I, this makes me obviously think of the how shall not judge crowd. You know, where Jesus actually has a laundry list of sins that he recites, including licentiousness, which is a catch-all phrase for all sexual misconduct. So he does talk about homosexuality. So uh, whenever they say he didn't say that, the, the truth is almost the opposite. And as for walls, what is a wall? It's, it's This is what we do on this side, and this is what you do on that side. Mm-hmm. That's what a wall is. You know, when Jesus went into the temple and saw the money changers, did he say, you know, wow, that's really cool what you do in there, guys? Can I buy something? No. Whip out a cords, line in the sand, wall, get the hell out. Finally, Steve, how come you never address uh, environmentalism and overpopulation concerns? 
<laughs> Sorry. Did I laugh at <laughs> As a believer, are you not worried about the creation? Well, first of all, let me address the concept of overpopulation. And a, the- a strong theological argument could be made overpopulation isn't actually possible in the biblical worldview. Because if all life is a gift from God and God controls the opening, ultimately the opening and closing of wombs, as the Bible says, if those things are true, then where do you ever come up with overpopulation? I think you'd be hard-pressed to come up with a worldview that says there's overpopulation in light of those things. Now, are there, too, are, are there sectors of this planet where there are too many people for the resources available? But those aren't That's the fault the of the people. It's the fault of the unbiblical philosophies that have been instituted that run contrary to the way God created the world and the natural law. They have been fully implemented to the detriment of those people, and that's what's happened to those resources. That's why we as Christians are commanded to t- not just get people to repent of their sins, but to teach the world the commands that God has given us, the full counsel of God's word, okay? In terms of the United States, we're actually in a demographic winner here. I mean, we've we've killed fifty six million of our own people. We we don't have any, we don't have enough people, guys. We don't have enough people to keep the welfare state solvent. We're almost to a one to one ratio of taxpayer to beneficiary with Social Security when it was one to twenty five forty years ago. Okay, so we 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 need more people. That's actually one of the arguments corporate America has for amnesty for Ill- illegal immigration. That we don't have enough worker bees. We need more. You guys aren't populating enough. Uh, I think white America right now is at its low lowest overall birth rate. Your generation, regardless yes. of racial, mm-hmm. socioeconomic status, Aaron, is at the lowest birth rate in American history across the board. So we, are, we need more people. Black, brown, white, we, we need more American people. We don't have enough. All right? So overpopulation isn't a problem here in the United States. But in terms of where the environment comes in, when, when the world is made, Adam is then created. One of the first creations, or one of the first orders God gives, his, the first human he ever makes, Adam, is I have given you dominion over the creation. Now go and subdue it. What does dominion mean? Power, authority, control. God says to Adam, you are given, I have made this creation, I've given you dominion, power, and authority over it. In other words, I made this for you. Now you go and subdue it. The creation was made for man, not man for the creation. We're not part of an ecosystem. We're not part of a food chain. We're higher than the angels in the created order. This was all made by God for us. Now, in light of that, we should rule it and use it in a way that honors him. Which means we should conserve what we don't need, use what we must, enjoy what we can. Let me repeat that. Conserve what we don't need, use what we must, enjoy what we can. But we should not overindulge. We should not needlessly strip mine things. We should needlessly pour sludge into the water table, things of that nature. Not because it will hurt dodo birds, but because it's stupid because it'll hurt ourselves. I mean, the beauty of God's natural law is it's often self-enforcing. When we violate it, when we break God's law, it will ultimately end up breaking us. We don't even need to have the sulfur rain down or lightning to strike. It's inherent into the code of the planet. Animals don't have souls. We do. So we're not one with them. So I believe in conservation of our resources. But I don't believe in environmentalism. Because the creation, the environment is here for us. We are not here for it. You just summed up uh, the tale of... uh 
Adam and Eve quite well. As long as you abide by God's roots, you are at play in the fields of the Lord. Exactly. But if you eat from that tree of knowledge, which means you are making up knowledge for yourself, God's knowledge is not good enough, then you start raping the environment, pillaging the environment. Overpopulation happens in unique sectors of the world. Globally, though, Thomas Malthus has been proven to be a fraud. He, I mean, whether he was well-intentioned or not, he just simply did not... Un- what Todd's referring to is what's often, what's often categorized as Malthusian economics or demographics, this idea that uh, we have to be utilitarian in our thinking because we are going to have minimal resources for what the population right. of the If you divided is. the entire population population of the world into families of four. I believe that they could all live within the state of Texas on something like a quarter acre. So it is not that we have too many people for the, the amount of space that we have. Just isn't. Yeah, and this is uh, I, this is definitely one of those situations, as are so many when you uh, when you hear things like this. This this is coming from a progressive slash uh, utilitarian slash atheistic worldview. This is one of those issues where you don't say, well, uh, according to this study, uh, we uh, have uh, enough food and we'll have enough food to uh, feed you know up to 10 billion people no just reject the premise of the question go right to the philosophical in your worldview underpinnings don't don't even play the game with other people uh, because that's what they want you to do just refute the premise we'll come back have some final words on what you just heard here tonight in a moment you're listening to steve dace We're not concerned about what you think, but why you think it. Steve Dace. All right, back here to wrap it up on a Worldview Wednesday, and thus for the evening here tonight. So you guys, give us your overall thoughts on the conversation we just had. Our own little Worldview Wednesday variation of three questions. I know, Todd, you have been... Uh, you've been uh, tugging on me to, to answer some of these uh, questions that keep coming up repeatedly. Did we do a fair enough job with those tonight, do you think? Um, more than fair. I just could only hope that we had ears to hear. Because if you take the logic of the left on this entire discussion this week on the refugee issue to its logical conclusion, the 25 to 30-year-old man living in the Middle East uh, of uh, who who comes from a tradition that is known to have a propensity of disrespect towards women. And we have the evidence of what happened in Germany, as you say, of uh, rape epidemics uh, gone wild. That person is of greater concern to the average progressive in the United States than the one who happens to be pregnant at any given time They have less concern for the baby in their own belly in terms of fundamental rights than the man, the type of man who would uh, who would uh, disrespect them to the point of rape. This is a sign of a country gone mad. I think number one, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. First two words of that statement are The the fool. So the denial of God, if God is the source of reality, the denial of God and his law, therefore, is a denial of what? Reality itself. What do we call people who deny reality? Insane. Insane or fools. That's what that means. Any standard apart from the natural law will eventually lead to insanity. 
one uh tonight we need to do more uh worldview wednesdays like this and uh two this is um this is important for everybody uh one if you're not clear on the answer to some of these questions because i know you get asked these questions i know you see these questions on on uh, social media i know you have friends who are uh, asking some of these questions or putting out some of these uh false objections or just objections it's important for you to one know the truth and two when you answer these types of questions, once you have the truth, to make it your own. Don't just make it rote. Don't just memorize facts. As long as uh, what you're saying is theologically accurate, make it your own. And I think when you do that, so you'll be the most convincing. And I think people will understand you the most. So it's good to have the answers to these questions. But study, to, study it enough to where you can put it in your own words as well. If you guys have more questions along these lines, I, we, I love doing stuff like this. Okay, and uh, I'm happy to do it, particularly segments like this for Worldview Wednesday, whenever the occasion arises. Uh, I've, I was once the person asking these questions. Okay, I mean, I, I needed to be intellectually satisfied, right? Uh, and, and so I'm, that's the way God made my mind to work. So I'm not threatened by these questions at all, nor am I offended. I'm happy to tackle them as often as uh, people intelligently, anyway, bring them to my attention. John 3.17. You're listening to Steve Dace.